Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. Um, tonight, I want to talk to you about honor again. Uh, this morning, we talked about how the road to honor, which is humility. That if we want honor in our lives, we want to receive honor. The only way that that is ever going to happen is if we become a humble people. That everything we have to do has to come out of an attitude of humility. That's what Jesus is like. I am meek and lowly of heart. He's a humble person at heart. Paul said, uh, uh, King David said, your gentleness has made me great. The word gentle in the Hebrew is exactly the same word. Hebrew word that's translated humility or meekness in other places. So, so it, is, it is the humility of God that allows us to be great. Isn't that awesome? You think about every attribute of God. There's, there's a lot of people that talk about the love of God. Some people talk about the power of God. Some people talk about the foreknowledge of God. Uh, some people talk about God's, God's power to save. I mean, all of that is true. But what makes us great is that God is essentially, in his heart, he's humble, he's meek, he's gentle. And, uh, you know, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, he said, I was with you, and he uses a a female metaphor. He said, I was with you, and I cared for you like a nursing mother does her children. You know, there's there's a lot spoken about the father heart of God. You never hear much about the mother heart of God. And, and that there's something about that, that metaphor, I was with you and I treated you just like a nursing mother does her children. A nursing mother is a breastfeeding mother. And, and Paul says, my relationship with you, when it kicked off, it was just like that. Jesus uses female language as well, by the way, when he's weeping over Jerusalem. He said, how often I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. That's a female metaphor. A hen is not a rooster. You know, roosters make a lot of noise, don't they? But hens embrace, mother hens, they embrace, they gather. And, and you know, we need, we need to understand the father heart of God, but we need to understand there's a mother heart as well. You know, and it's the two genders together that display the uniqueness of who God is. Because God is spirit, he's beyond gender, but both genders reflect something about the nature of God. And we need both. And so when we talk about honor tonight, I just want to read a scripture to you. And I want, you to show, I want to show you tonight the importance of having a new covenant view of one another. A new covenant view of one another in order to honor what is in and on each other's lives. Okay, let's turn to uh, Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're going to read from verse 2. <laughs> Did somebody just pop some chewing gum then? Was that what that was? Was that you guys out there? Well done. That was just really very good. Don't do it again. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That was truth and grace there, right? And uh, and it says this in Mark chapter 6, verse 2. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished. Everyone say astonished. You know, when Jesus teaches, people do get astonished. And saying, where did this man get these things? Has has anyone that you've known for a long time ever done something that astonished you? In a good way. 
<laughs> you know, I was always astonishing my father, but never in a good way. <laughs> I was like, you did what? <laughs> he was astonished many times. Uh, but, but, you know, yeah, it wasn't always a good way. But here, Jesus astonished people. And, um, you know, sometimes people surprise us, don't they? And this is Jesus in his hometown surprising people. Uh, and they said, um, where did this man get these things? What wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Now, here it comes. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? That's a big family. Are not his sisters here with us? Sisters, plural. So Jesus grew up with a big family, little brothers and sisters. He was the older brother, so he knew what that meant. And then he says this, they were offended at him. What? They were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now here's the comment of the Bible after that little incident. Now he could do no many mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Have you ever made the connection that a lack of honor is ultimately a lack of faith? A lack of honor is ultimately a lack of faith. And the problem in this passage is that Jesus was well known to this community because he grew up there. In other words, it's, it's like that old saying that says familiarity breeds contempt. You see, sometimes you think you know somebody. But the danger is you don't know them the way God has created them to be. And unless we begin to view each other through new covenant eyes and see who we are in God, we will always limit what that person can be in our particular relationship and context. Let me read to you another scripture and then I'll put these two things together. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 says this. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, no one purely in, in simple human terms. Even though we have known Christ, the anointed one, according to the flesh. Why? Because he was born of a woman. He, he actually, Jesus was brought into the world through a birth. He actually became flesh. He actually grew up in a, in a village called Nazareth. He actually learned a trade. This is all about the humanity of Jesus. But Paul says we've got to get beyond the humanity of Jesus to know him as the anointed Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
There is a side to his humanity that we embrace and we understand. But he says, yet now we know him, thus no more. And then he makes the connection between Jesus and us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Do you realize that the way you look at somebody else who you think you know will determine the degree that they will be able to minister out of the anointing and the new creation authority that Jesus Christ has given them. A prophet has honor, except where? His own town, his own country, his own house. Do you know the hardest people to please are the people whose hometown you come from? Why? Because here's here's the thing. Whilst people were astonished at Jesus, they couldn't get beyond his humanity. Well, we know you. We know your brothers. We know your sisters. We know your mum. We remember you when you were the snotty-nosed little kid who used to come round and ask if you could borrow some sugar. We remember you when you used to play and did all those naughty things. Oh, we know you. And here you are coming with all this wisdom and all this stuff. You think you've come to teach us. But we know you. And so often we limit what God wants to do because we know one another according to the flesh, according to our humanity. I think one of the hardest things for a parent to do is to begin to see their children in terms of who they are in God. I think that's one of the hardest things to do. When my son was 12 years of age, my, my, I, I was walking downstairs once. I had to get him for dinner and I, I went to the door. I went to knock on the door and I, I suddenly stopped. I could hear him singing. He was 12 years of age. I thought, I wonder what's going on here. And I just, I just stood at the door, listening. I stood there for 10 minutes. He was singing worship songs. He got hold of my guitar. He was playing my guitar and he was singing worship songs. I, I snuck upstairs. I said, Jackie, come down. Come down and listen to this. She said, what's going on? I said, it's Jonathan. Come and listen. We stood at the door for another 10 minutes. I said, let's just leave him. He's into it. He was singing and worshipping in his room on his own. He stood there. He was down there for about an hour and a half singing worship songs. What 12-year-old kid does that? Hello? I thought, wow, that's incredible. He came to me one day and he, he, he was about, he was a little bit older than 12, maybe 12 and a half, nearly 13. He said, Dad, I'd really love a guitar. You know how much I love worship. I said, son, I'll get you a guitar. And I went to a friend of mine and I said, I really want to invest in my son's future and his ministry. I said, I want the best possible guitar that money can buy, but I don't want to pay the best price. (laughs) Anyone know what I'm talking about? Father with six kids preaching here. So I said, I want the best guitar at the lowest price. And my friend, he looked, we waited for six months. He said, you won't believe it. He said, I found a guitar. There was a music shop. It was broken into. Some of the glass fell on this guitar. It slightly damaged the work. He said, but it's very simple to get it repaired. And they've knocked two-thirds of the price off the guitar. I said, what is it? He said, it's a tailor. Oh, you're all going, ooh, yeah, yeah. You see, all the musicians in the room know what a tailor is, you know. Now, if if, if you were were a... if you were somebody who was into clothes, that would be like an Armani. Or for ladies, that's like a Donna Karen. 
You know what I'm talking about now? Are we communicating? <laughs> the Taylor is the creme de la creme of guitars. Okay, acoustic guitars. It's right up there. So this was, this was like a 3,000-pound a, a, a guitar, and they were selling it for 1,000 pounds. So this was a really expensive guitar. And I said, I'll have it. I bought it. I didn't even look at it. I said, yeah, that'll be good. And then I, I paid a little bit of extra money to get it repaired. And I remember going to my son, and this was, you know, he's now on, on the road to becoming 14 years of age. And I remember going to him and I said, uh, son, I've, I've got you a guitar. And I remember he did that, you know, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same this morning I talked about. He did that look. From the rising of the sun. <laughs> you know, he just did that look that teenagers do at 14. Uh, you've got me a guitar. Uh, I've already chosen a guitar, Dad. I already know what I want. And I said, well, look, if you don't like the guitar I've chosen, then we'll, we'll get, get the one. He, he wanted a Yamaha. How I many of you know it? Yamaha's really average? In the guitar world. Nothing against Yamaha, but it's just in the guitar world. You know, it's just not there. It's there. Yeah? You know what I'm saying? And so... so I said to him, if you don't like the guitar, you don't have to have it. So we drove for about an hour one day to get this guitar. And, and I remember we walked into the shop and, and there was the guitar case on the floor with Taylor written on the side. And he's looking at it. And I, and I, and I can tell. And I said, oh, that's your guitar. And I can tell what he's thinking. He's thinking, that's a Taylor box. But is there a Taylor guitar on the inside? You know what I mean? Have you seen those guys who carry really flash cases? You know, they carry the flash and then they open it up. It's so disappointing, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about? You know, it's like so impressive, the guitar case. Then they open it. It's like a cheap replica on the inside. Oh, that's disappointing. And so I said, you know, I looked in and I said, well, son, you, you don't have to have it if you don't like it. So he opened the case and there was this beautiful Taylor acoustic guitar. I've never seen a 14-year-old kid repent more quickly in all my life. He said, oh, this is perfect. This is, this is better than anything I ever could have imagined. And I said, well, why don't you play it? You know, see if you like it. And he played it. He goes, oh, Dad, this is, this is phenomenal. This is great. I want it. Thank you so much. This is brilliant. And so I said, so, so your old man sort of knows how to choose a good guitar then? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I goes, oh, this is awesome. So, so we get back in the car and I'm about to drive away and I look in the mirror and my son is in the back and he's sobbing. He's just crying. Tears are streaming down his face. I said, son, what's wrong? And, and in his brokenness, he looked, he looked at me. And then I started crying. We had that kind of father-son thing going. My wife is looking at the two of us. <laughs> it's kind of a man thing. <laughs> and he said this to me. He said, I don't get it. And I said, well, what don't you get? And he said, it's not my birthday. It's not Christmas. Why would you spend this much money? He said, I know how much these guitars cost. Why would you do that? What, what on earth compelled you? And by this time, I'm streaming. I mean, I'm sobbing. He's sobbing. My wife is looking at both of us. <laughs> and these words came out of my mouth. I said, son, my, your mother and I want to be the first 
to acknowledge the anointing on your life, not the last. And then we cried a bit more. (laughs) And that did something in that 14-year-old kid. It did something in him. It it released something in him. You see, I I, I could have given you a list of all the things he did wrong as a 14-year-old. I could have given you a list. I remember when my son came home, 13 years of age, 13 years of age, and I opened the front door and the alcohol nearly knocked me out. It nearly knocked me out. He was absolutely paralytic at 13 years of age. He'd just been with his friends. They drunk beer. I don't know what they drunk, but it it was enough to, to knock anybody out if you were in his presence. And I opened the front door and I just, I was so shocked. I just looked at him and he saw the shock on my face. And I said, I think you should go to your bedroom and sleep it off. And that's all I said to him. I didn't tell him off. I didn't rebuke him. I didn't reprimand him. I just, I just was shocked and I looked at him and I said, go to your room, son. Go sleep it off. And the next day he, he came to me and he was so broken and he said, He said, Dad, he said, thank you that you didn't say anything. He said, but I I saw the look of disappointment on your face. I'm so sorry for what I did. I didn't tell him off. I didn't beat him up. You know what I mean? You, you, You can so easily react to something, can't you, that somebody in your house does wrong. And, and, you know, I don't know, maybe I should have done something, but I was just so shocked. All I said to him was, go to your room. He said, he said, Dad, I, I, I just feel so ashamed. He said, that won't happen again. And it, it didn't happen again. But I could give you a list of all the things he'd done wrong. That I could say, who do you think you are? You want a guitar? Who do you think you are? You're a snotty-nosed teenager. You've never done a day's work in your life. And you, and you want me to buy you a guitar? I could have had that attitude. And you see, sometimes we have an attitude towards one another where we, th- we make people think like they have to earn our approval. They have to do something to validate who they are. And you know what? Sometimes the grace of God will just touch a person's life and use a person, even with a bit of brokenness, even with faults there, even with stuff that's not quite right. And you know what? The only way that you and I can get the benefit of what God has put on their life is if we honour what God has put on their life. You see, in Jesus' hometown, and Jesus was the perfect son of God, by the way, they said, we know you. Who do you think you are? We know your brothers. We know your family. We know your sister. You're just a carpenter. But the truth is, he was the anointed Messiah. The carpenter was part of his humanity, part of his discipline, part of his training, part of his preparation in God. But what was on his life was special. I wonder in our midst what would be released if we just honoured people and saw them differently. We just began to see them differently. We began to speak differently. With all of our kids, we tried to do this as they've grown up. We tried to honour what God has put on their life. Now, the stuff I know, the stuff I know about them, guess what? The stuff they know about me. 
I mean, you know, because no family is perfect. You've got to keep it real. But, but here, what would happen if we, if we changed this proverb? What, what would happen if we decided, well, we'll be a house that honors what's in it? Rather than looking down and despise it. You know, every time the Apostle Paul wrote to a church, he wrote these words. He'd begin his letter something like this. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. He knew that God had called him. But by the end of his life, when he wrote to Titus, which was his second to last letter before he died, he wrote these words to Titus. Paul, an apostle, according to the faith of God's elect. It's very different. Because Paul knew that his apostleship was limited by the faith of God's elect. He knew he was an apostle by the will of God. But, but to be an apostle in some context would only happen if the faith of God's elect recognized what he carried. When they put faith in what he carried, he could minister in the fullness of his calling. You see, Jesus, even the perfect son of God who had the spirit without measure, Jesus could not minister in the fullness of his anointing because of the unbelief of his hometown. Well, if that was true for Jesus, that must be true for you and I. You know, I was astonished watching Joanne. You have so many talented people in this church. It's just unbelievable. You know, just the anointing this young woman is carrying. Just so young. But I don't know if you see it. It's, it's so amazing. And you know what? When we release faith into that, regardless of age, regardless of the inexperience, if we honor the presence, the new creation anointing that's there, you know what? They're able to minister in the fullness of that anointing. Something is released that's way beyond their wisdom, their learning, their ability. It's the touch of heaven that comes through them and our faith releases it. Every time we release faith towards someone's ministry, you know what we're doing? We're helping them to live in the fullness of who they are in God. And that for me is exciting. That for me is amazing. Just to have a new creation attitude. You see, ultimately, I believe God changes people. We, we don't stay the immature kids that we were. We all start out that way. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, my father being astonished when I went into ministry. I mean, he wasn't a believer when I, when I went to Bible college. But I remember, you know, he came along. He only came one time to the church I was leading where I was preaching. And uh, it, was, it was like the service was like this. I mean, it was, he goes, I didn't realize you led a happy, clappy church. <laughs> and I said, well, Dad, we are happy and we do clap. So that's fair enough. We are happy clappy. And he was just astonished. And later on, many years later, he came to faith. Many years later, he came to faith as a man of 84 years of age. You know, and it took almost that long before he finally acknowledged what was on my life. And just said, son, 
you know, thank you for the choices you made. He didn't say that to me in my 20s. He said to me, you're an idiot. You're throwing your life away. You're stupid. You're dumb. He, I mean, there were a whole list of things he would tell me. But later on in life, he acknowledged. Now, now fortunately, God had given me father types in the body of Christ to encourage me because my own father wasn't around for me. But I thought, I thought to myself, wow, you know, with the next generation that God is raising up, I want to be there to encourage them. I want to I have faith in what's on their life. You know, Victoria, you, I don't know if you know this, but there's an amazing leadership call on your life. An amazing leadership call. You know, God is going to use you to lead a generation of young men and young women. And, and you have an ability to call and to gather and to give direction and vision to people. I just see it on your life. I don't know if your family see it, but I see it. And your sister, you know, I remember meeting her, was it last week or a couple of weeks ago? There's something on her life as well. She's somebody who's going to have a testimony that will go around the world. It'll be her testimony. It'll be her story that will travel. But you, it'll be, it'll be the way you gather people and the way you lead people. See, I, I, that's what I see on people's lives. And my encouragement to us, come on, where are we as a church? When somebody comes along, oh, yeah, that's Tico's boy. Yeah, you know. Yeah, of course he's got a good voice. He's Tico's son. Well, well, yeah, there's that generational part of it, but how about the anointing? How about the call of God? How about us, according to the faith of God's elect, how about us having faith in some of these young people? That doesn't mean we don't spank them from time to time and we don't correct them and we don't say, hey, that wasn't good, buddy. We don't say, go to your bedroom. It doesn't mean we don't do stuff like that, but it means we don't stop believing in them. We, we don't allow the mishaps and the missteps to disqualify them from the call of God because the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. Without repentance, the old King James says. Gifts and calling of God, they're gifts of grace. They come from heaven. We have to work with people to help them get sanctified, to help them live for Jesus, to help them shape their character because God doesn't want your gifting to take you where your character can't keep you. We have to work with that. But one of the ways we do that is according to the faith of God's elect. It's where we honour and we choose to put faith in people. This is one of the greatest ways we can honour one another. We put faith in what God has placed on other people. And, uh, you know, when we do that, it releases something in them. Now, now listen, the, the anointing can be strong on a person and they can still minister to a level. Even when I'm in environments, I've been in hostile environments sometimes. I've been able to minister, but the results are not what they would be if people were responsive. It's one of the reasons why in our Quippers churches, we say we want a responsive culture. You know, I love it that you say yes. I love it that you say amen. I love it that, you know, we laugh about it, but I love it that some people shout out sometimes. You know, you need a good heckle. But it's usually, usually an encouraging heckle. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> 
We need that kind of thing because a responsive culture is always a culture that's releasing faith. You know, we made a decision on our leadership team. We, we were trying to work out how could we have a responsive culture in our church because our, our five o'clock service, it bounces. I mean, it's wild. Our five, and 9.30 service is really quiet. That's where the old folks go. These are people more like my age. They go down the night, they're a little bit quieter. And so we're trying to get them to be a little bit more responsive, you know. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's a bit countercultural for them, for some of them. So we made a decision. We said, okay, on the leadership, if one of us gets excited and we clap, we're all going to clap. So, so it just takes one of us to do it. And then the other sort of 10 on the team will clap along as well. Oh, he's doing it. Okay, we're all going to clap. And then guess what? The whole congregation claps. It's amazing. You just, it takes one to sort of lead out. And then, and then half a dozen other people say, oh, he's clapping. I'm going to clap too. I thought that might get a better response. But anyway, there you go. See? <laughs> That's how you create a responsive culture. And do you know what it does? In process of time, it builds faith. It builds faith. This young lady here, what's your name? Maria. Naria. Wow, that's, that's, I've never heard that name before. That's amazing. It sounds like something out of a C.S. Lewis novel. It's, it's beautiful. Naria. Okay, wow, it's like Maria but with an N. Naria. Uh, did I get that right? It's beautiful, it's lovely. Okay, Naria, when I look at you, I see a woman of faith. I see a woman of faith and I see a woman who, who's breaking off limitations that's been in her life. Things that people said, you can't do this, you can't do that. I see you breaking through. I, I, you know, that there's that scripture. It was in that psalm I read this morning in, in 2 Samuel uh, 26, I think it is. It says, by my God, I can run through a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. God teaches my arms to bend a bow of bronze. I just feel like that's part of the process you're in right now. God is teaching you things, but, and you're breaking out of limitations. You're a woman of faith. That's what I see on you. And you see, what happens when we start to release faith in what God has placed on people's lives. You know what happens? We start to operate and function at a brand new level. And sometimes God will take you out of a situation where you're known into a situation where you're unknown to lift you. Because often in a new context, people will put, put more faith because they don't know you. They don't know what you can't do. <laughs> and when people don't know what you can't do, Sometimes you'll go to a whole new level. That's why I believe in going on mission. That's why I believe going to new contexts. I want to encourage you, if you ever get the opportunity, even short-term mission, I encourage you, go somewhere where people don't know you and dare to do something you've not done before but you know is in you. I mean, don't do something weird, but do something... <laughs> do something you're called to do. Go, go to a brand new place, a brand new level. And, and, and in that place, you know what? When you experience it, bring it back. Don't just go back to where you were. Keep it with you. And just surprise everyone around you. What would happen if the church was not like the world, but in the church we actually put faith and we gave honor to the prophets in our own context, to the people with anointings in our own context? 
I, I believe we're going to see a whole new generation rising up and flourishing. You know, sometimes when I'm talking with older people, they say, oh, Peter, you're always encouraging young people. What about me? You know, I've been waiting 30 years. Nothing's happened. What about me? I say, well, if you've been waiting 30 years, it's probably not going to happen. That's, that's hard to hear, isn't it? That's a tough one. Being really pastoral right now, aren't I? And here's what I say to people who are just more my age waiting along. I say, listen, why don't you become a mother or a father to a younger generation? Because maybe that's what God has prepared you for. Maybe it was never about you. Maybe it was about you nurturing and hosting and helping another generation. Maybe that's what God is preparing you for. And you know, when people step out of themselves and start to do that, it's amazing because we live in a generation that is really a fatherless generation. You know, I had a dear friend of mine. She was a, a, a PhD psychologist and she wrote a book called The Absent Father for her PhD. It was an astonishing work. All the, when she did her PhD thesis, all the psychologists at university said, young woman, you're going to make one of the greatest contributions to psychology today through what you've written through your thesis. And what she told me was very interesting. She said, Peter, the problem with absent fathers is not that they're absent physically, it's that they're absent emotionally. And the greatest problem in families today is not that a father is absent because he travels, it's that he's, he can be present but absent emotionally. He doesn't engage. And what we need is a generation of mothers and fathers in the church who engage, who are present. You know, one of the hardest things today is to, is to be in the moment. It's very hard for a millennial generation Why? Because the temptation is to get your iPhone out and just check Instagram or check Facebook. And and as soon as you do that, you've lost the moment you're already in. You know, it's one of the reasons why if you want to live in the moment, like when I go out, I I take my daughters out for dates from time to time. It's a really cool thing to do. Really cool thing to do. Yeah, you're all going to cry now. But yeah. I took, I took my 23-year-old daughter out. and She is drop-dead gorgeous. She could be a model. She looks absolutely fantastic. I felt so proud to take her out on a date. I could tell everyone in the restaurant thought I was her sugar daddy. You know, you know when you get that look? Because she's quite affectionate, you know, quite touchy-huggy. And I could tell, you know, people think, you know, oh, he must be really rich to have a girl like that. And I said, yeah, I'm loaded. I'm really rich in the kingdom. I remember when the bill came, the girl brought the bill and my daughter took the, took the thing and said, oh, I'm going to pay for this. I remember the girl looking really astonished. Wow, he must be good. You know. <laughs> when the model picks up the bill. But one of the reasons I do that is when we have those moments together, you know what we do? We turn off our phones. We put them on silent and we put them away. We make a deal. We will be present for that hour and a half we're together. She's not allowed to check Facebook. She's not allowed to check Instagram. And I'm not either. And they've lived with a father whose people want to contact all the time. And so I say to them, okay, I'm with you now. 
the phone's on silent. It's not even on the table. And we talk. And you know what I've discovered? Now, I don't know if all women are like this. But guys, let me give you a heads up here. Because I have five daughters and I've lived with a woman a long time. Here's what I've discovered about my girls. I don't get to where they're really at till we've talked for an hour. Now, that, for a guy, that's really frustrating. You know what a guy wants? He wants, tell me the problem and I'll give you, I'll give you three solutions. Here is, the, here is the difficulty for a woman. She honestly doesn't know what the problem is and she has to talk till she discovers it. And after an hour of talking, she finally, oh, oh yeah, this is what I've been trying to say. Now, if you're a guy, you're sitting there and you're thinking, why the heck didn't you tell me that 55 minutes ago? But the truth is, she didn't know 55 minutes ago because it's like spaghetti in her head. She's trying to unravel it. And the only way she can unravel it is to talk to someone who's prepared to listen for an hour. And so I'm listening, I've just learned to listen. And it was a discipline I had to develop. And then, and then after about an hour, we kind of get to the heart of it. It's like, okay, okay, okay. This is what I've been waiting for. And the other thing I've discovered as a guy is, guys, just be really slow to offer solutions. <laughs> the women are loving this message tonight, aren't they? <laughs> be really slow to offer solutions because what women really want is a sense of connection and understanding more than an answer. I had a friend of mine, his name is Moise, it's the French for Moses. You know, and, and his wife, it used to irritate him that his wife would come to him and say, they would be going to a wedding or going to a party, and she'd say, I've got nothing to wear. And he would open the wardrobe door, and there would be like 25 dresses. And he says, he said, what do you mean you've got nothing to wear? Now, when a woman says she's got nothing to wear, you have to, you have to interpret that. She doesn't mean there aren't clothes in her wardrobe. What she means is there's nothing there that's appropriate for this context and she feels really out of place and she doesn't want to wear what she wore to the last place because the same women are going to the same event. Right? And so my friend Moise, he said, I can't afford to buy her a new dress. I said, she doesn't want you to buy her a new dress. She wants you to understand and emotionally connect. He said, how do I do that? Just tell her you understand. <laughs> and so he came to this time where she, she said, oh, Moise. She said, we've got this event coming. And she goes, I've got nothing to wear. And he started to cry and he said, oh honey, I'm so sorry that I can't buy you a new dress. It's terrible that you have nothing. And he started to cry and she said, it's okay, I'll find something. <laughs> he rang me up, he said, thank you, thank you. It's completely changed my relationship. <laughs> connection 
<laughs> we've, got to, we've got to learn to believe in one another. And in order to believe one another, we've got to know one another. But we, we can't know one another after the flesh. We, we spend a long time doing that with each other. We've got to know one another according to who we are in God. The new creation. We've got to learn to honour the callings and the anointings that each of us carry. We've got to speak words of faith and affirmation over people so that they begin to live up to who they are in God and not live up to what they were in the past. You know, when I was at school, I think I told you the very first day of my senior school, it wouldn't be allowed today, but it really happened to me. This is, this is almost 50 years ago. The first day of my senior school, there were almost a 1,000 people in the auditorium and the headmaster called out my name and two other boys. Prothero Fleet Neville, stand up. And, it, and he looked at the whole school. He said, I want everybody at the, in the school to look at these boys because they're troublemakers. These are, these are people that you need to avoid. Can you imagine that? And something on the inside of me said, F you. As a 13-year-old kid, because I had, I had no understanding of what sanctification was at 13, something in me thought, F you, I'll give you trouble. And that's what I did for the next three years of my life. I gave, them tr- I gave them hell. They wanted hell. I gave them hell. I had the cane every week for the first year of senior school. Can you imagine that? Every week. <laughs> and after three years of senior school, I remember a man called David Hudson, an English teacher. He took me into his office one day. He said, Peter, I've read some of the essays you've written. He said, you're an intelligent young man. Why do you behave the way you do? And I said, as a 15-year-old kid then, I said, because nobody expects any differently from me. That was insightful, I thought, for a 15-year-old. He said, well, I expect something different. He was the first man who believed in me, and from that day I started to change. He said, I'm going to go to the headmaster. I'm going to have you moved from this set into a higher learning set because I think you can achieve something with your life. And I said, you'd do that for me. He said, yeah. He said, but it means saying goodbye to all your buddies and the people you keep getting into trouble with. And there was a gang of us by then. (laughs) And he went to the headmaster and they did. They literally changed me. You know, I was around about 15 years of age. It was a very difficult transition for me, actually, because I was saying goodbye to all my troublemaker friends. And, you know, they thought, you know, I'd suddenly become snobbish and I'd suddenly become distant. But I just, what I was doing was responding to somebody who believed in me. You know, and I went on to do O-levels and and they were absolutely astonished. Nobody was expecting me to get any qualifications. I went and got O-levels. In fact, I did so well, I got accepted into college. I went to college and did A-levels. Pure maths, applied maths, physics. I did very difficult A-levels. I went on to Manchester University to study civil engineering. I was the first boy in that school who ever went to university. Nobody in that school ever went to university. Nobody could do it. It was a troublemaker school. But because of one man who looked at me and said, I expect something different, He had faith in me. He honoured what was on my life as a teacher. It did something in me. It changed something in me. And instead of living with an F-U attitude, I started to live with an I can do attitude. 
And there's so many young men and women out there. And you know what? They've got an FU attitude in their heart. And the reason they have that there is because everybody talks about the trouble they get into and all the problems they have and all the issues that I have. And there's a whole lot of people with issues and problems. But let me tell you that there's a whole lot of people out there with callings and anointings that they have yet to discover. You know what I love about Jesus? He spoke to Peter, he changed his name. He spoke about his name changed twice. It happens in John chapter one. It happens in Matthew chapter 16. In John chapter one, the very first time that Jesus meets the apostle Peter, he says to him, you're Simon. And the word Simon in the Greek literally means a reed. It literally means somebody who bends with the wind, who's blown about with every wind of teaching in Ephesians 4 just goes with the direction of the wind Jesus said to him when I look at you I don't see a reed I see a rock you are going to be Peter Jesus began to declare over Peter's life a different calling he began to know him according to the new creation that he was and that he would become and he began to minister to Peter as the new creation apostle And he says, you're going to be a rock. You're going to be stable. You're going to be firm. In fact, later on, when Peter wavered, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you. He didn't say, Peter, Peter. Because at that moment in Peter's life, he reverted back to what he was in the flesh. He reverted back to his humanity, his brokenness, his insecurity, his uncertainty. But the calling of being a rock never left him the calling of being a rock, Jesus reinstated him. And and I want to declare over our church, come on. No matter what you've been in the past, you can be something different in the future. Jesus Christ has given you a new script. There's a new destiny. There's a new word for you. There's a new future for you. You don't have to let the past define you for the future. You don't have to let the words spoken by teachers or peers or parents who often speak out of anger. They speak out of frustration. God has a word for you tonight that He wants to declare over your life. And He wants you to know and understand that you have a great future that you have an anointing that's going to change the world, that you can be a world changer. And if we begin to see one another in that light, guess what? We begin to become who God has called us to be. See, I remember as a frustrated teenager, because there were a whole group of people who never expected me to behave any differently. I behaved in a particular way. I just lived up to their expectations. But how about if we become the one person who begins to see somebody differently? Who just begins to speak into their life and say, you can be different and you can make a difference. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.